You know, church, I just... Come on, let's just take a moment to celebrate. If we're going to do it, let's do it, right? But I feel in this moment, especially as we were singing that last song, I, there is a real spirit of victory in this room right now as we declared that there is a victory. I just felt that there was something that was resonating in the hearts of people in this room. You know, and I believe that if it's happening in this room, come on, how many of you are glad that it's happening at home for the guys watching online too, amen? But there is a victory that is crying in our hearts right now. There is a, a desire that we have breakthrough, that we find, you know, that we're not going to get kicked around by 2021, but we're going to leave behind probably the strangest year that you and I may ever, ever live through, and that there is a victory that is coming. And we don't have to wait for the calendar to flip over to 2021. We can start praying and believing for breakthrough right here, right now. And it's... Uh, you know, I, I love that song. I think it, it says so much, you know, so much biblical truth in there that just, you know, really grabs a hold of my heart and really gets me wanting to, to celebrate and praise God for all that He's done, the victory that was accomplished. But I want to point your attention just for a moment. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. There are the two ladies that go to the tomb. And they go there and they're expecting to, to see the dead body of Jesus. But come on, somebody, they don't find the dead body of Jesus. Instead, they find an empty tomb and they find some angels there. And the angels say to them something that was true then, and I believe it's true now. It was true about the resurrection of Jesus, and I believe it's true about whatever you need resurrecting in your life. The angels said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you looking for life in dead places? Why are you trying to find hope in hopeless situations? Why are you putting your trust in people that keep letting you down? People that have no desire to change the race. Why are we doing these things? Why are we hoping that a relationship is going to fix what only God can fix? Why are you looking for life in dead places? So I believe, come on church, as we press forward, as we move on ahead, that if we're going to go and we're going to experience the breakthrough that I believe that God has for us, as I heard you sing and I heard you declare that there is a victory, as you sang words of victory, I believe it came from a deep place in your heart. I believe with you that we need to stop looking for life in dead places and look to Him, and I believe the breakthrough is coming. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm glad I came to church today. Come on, somebody. Why don't you go ahead, as you grab a seat, say hi to somebody on the chat. Why don't you go ahead and drop a hello to somebody. I saw my mom is watching from the UK. Hey, mom, how are you? I know it's cute, right? Mm. Well, good morning. It's great to be able to be here. Glad that I'm able to come and share. Uh, my name is Tom Wood. I'm able to serve at the church as the executive pastor, and any chance Pastor Randy gives me a chance to come share. Always an absolute honor and privilege. I'm glad I'm able to do so. Um, but everyone have a good Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving good for everybody? Okay, us too. It was uh, quiet and boring by design. Uh, that's exactly what we wanted, and that's exactly what we got. And then uh, traditionally in our house, Black Friday is when it's all Christmas. So everything flips over. We start watching Christmas movies, and Christmas music is playing, and the tree's up on the whole bit. Um, and we also uh, now have to start thinking about Elf on the Shelf. Any of the parents start that whole Elf on the Shelf thing? Any parents here regret starting that Elf on the Shelf thing? Uh-huh. I'm real happy that lady made a lot of money. 
by making me very miserable. All right, well, let's move on. That's not why we're here today is for me to talk about Elf on the Shelf, right? But uh, this is the last week. This is week five of a series that I was able to start a number of weeks ago, uh, looking at also starring. So the idea being that as we look at the life of Jesus, so the New Testament, there are four books in the New Testament, about three quarters of the way through the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those four books of the Bible look at specifically the life of Jesus. So as he was on earth, uh, what is it that Jesus did? How was he born? You know, his, uh, the circumstances around his birth, all that stuff, the life of Jesus. And as we look at the life of Jesus and the story that the gospels are telling, just like any story, there are the main characters. There's the hero, who of course is Jesus himself. There's the bad guys. There's, uh, you know, there are the disciples, kind of the supporting characters. But then there are these groups of people that help move the story along. Um, but 2,000 years of history have kind of meant that, you know, we don't necessarily get a whole lot about these groups. So we spent the last number of weeks, there's been four weeks where we've been in this series looking at different groups within the New Testament, within the gospel specifically, that help tell the story of Jesus, that help grow, hopefully, our understanding of the story of Jesus and the power of what Jesus accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago. Uh, and so today we're going to conclude that by looking at the poor. So also starring, the story of Jesus, also starring the poor. And the poor, if you look at, um, biblically, if you look at the Old Testament, um, you really sort of see that God's heart towards the poor um, is shown on great display. Um, how many people think that I say the word heart weird? I don't know how else to say it, man. If I say it American, it's not going to sound good. Heart. Nope. Nope. Not doing that. So heart is where it is. I'm not from Massachusetts. But you really see God's heart towards the poor throughout the Old Testament, uh, you know, with the themes of poverty. So there's uh, places where it mentions not to be hard-hearted or tight-fisted. There's constant encouragement to be generous, uh, generous, especially if you look through the book of Proverbs, uh, to speak up for those that can't speak up for themselves. And in fact, farmers were told and commanded that when it's time to harvest, don't harvest the whole plot of land that you have. Leave a little bit so then the poor people can come and that they can have something. So there really is like this idea of there is God's heart towards the poor. And this was one of the ways that God's people in the Old Testament, the Hebrews, they stood out from the people around them. They stood out from the nations that they were surrounded by was because they had a, you know, the God that they served, the God of the Bible, the one true God, as we would confess, uh, they had a real heart for the poor, unlike the pagan gods of the nations around them. You know, typically in other pagan nations, uh, the poor weren't able to participate in the equivalent of temple worship because the, uh, they were typically priced out. You know, to be able to bring a sacrifice was an expensive thing to do. To be able to bring an animal for the purpose of sacrifice, to have worship in the temple like that, that was something expensive. But in God's temple, it says that if you're too poor, if you are unable to afford to bring the lamb for sacrifice, you can bring two turtle doves instead. And if you can't bring two turtle doves, bring about three and a half pounds of flour. So there's this accommodation around the poor people in the community that they're not excluded from worship. You could even point to proportionate giving. So it wasn't a flat rate to be accepted by God to give and be able to support the work of the temple. You need to give X. Instead, it was you need to bring a tithe of your increase. You need to bring 10% of your increase, which would, of course, just as it would today, fluctuate from person to person. But the idea is, is that we're not excluding the poor people from worship. Whereas the pagan nations around the Hebrews and around the Israelites would have excluded the poor people. And the, the Greek definition, as we fast forward to the New Testament, the New Testament was written uh, in Greek, and the Greek definition uh, is really, um, Greek is a language. It paints pictures uh, far much more so than English does. 
And so the picture that the Greek word for poor paints uh, is really someone that's in a posture of lowliness. It, it, it almost describes like a physical posture of someone that's d- doubled over in submission, that's somebody that is lo- of low stature, somebody that is, that is completely submissive to whatever's in front of them. That's the picture that it paints. And one of the Bible dictionaries that I was able to get my hands on described uh, the word poor. This is the word that's used in the New Testament to describe poor people. Is destitute of wealth, influence, position, honors, lowly, and afflicted. That's kind of the words that are used to describe the poor. And of course, I think we all understand and our heads would instantly go to that they were destitute of wealth, that they weren't financially affluent. I think that we would all get that just as it's true then as it is today. But I think also it's important to remember when the Greek talks about poor people, they're also talking about people that do not have influence, people that do not have position. They're not honored. They're lowly and they're afflicted. And in the, the New Testament itself, as you look at uh, you know, the culture that Jesus grew up in, um, Bible historians will give us some interesting stats. And I found this fascinating. If you're a, a numbers person, maybe this will kind of click with you. But only around 10% of the whole community that Jesus would have ministered to would be considered not poor. So only 10% of the people uh, you know, would be considered not poor. Either they were the upper class, the extreme wealthy, um, meaning that they had significant land, um, but there was a number of people that they didn't have significant land, but they just had enough to not be considered poor. But then as you sort of start going down the list, about 22% of the community were stable near substance level with reasonable hope of remaining above the minimal level to sustain life. So about 22% were just about making it through. Uh, And then about 40%, 40% of the people that Jesus would minister to were permanently hungry. Permanently hungry. Simply put, there was not enough food to feed everyone in the family. They're constantly at risk of getting sick, starving, and fighting to survive. But then the bottom 28%, these were the widows, orphans, beggars, disabled, unskilled day laborers, and prisoners... They were living in absolute desperation and had zero prospects of breaking out of the poverty they were in. Now, I just rattled off a number of numbers, but let me, let me just break it down like this. For about two-thirds of the people listening to Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus teaches them to pray and says, give us this day our daily bread, it was taken literally. That if we don't get our daily bread today, tomorrow is going to be real bad. For about two-thirds of the people, the level of poverty was so high that give us this day our daily bread was something they would have clung on to. Not give us this day our daily bread as I tuck into Thanksgiving leftovers. Holla. But if we don't get this bread today, we don't know what tomorrow's going to look like. And I haven't got this in my notes, but it, it, it's horrific, but it's, it's worth sharing. Um, there were many times when people in the first century, people are, you know, living in the areas where Jesus ministered, that were so poor, parents were faced with an awful choice of either suffering themselves, starving themselves to death, or letting one of the kids starve. And the horrible reality that a lot of these people faced was that if they let themselves suffer and they let themselves waste away, they couldn't work at all to feed anybody. And some people were in the awful position of having to look at one of the kids. I'm glad I'm not in that position, amen? But that is an awful reality of the first century. And the attitude towards the poor that people would have had in the world where Jesus ministered, uh, for those um, that were just about scraping it by, 
or the wealthy, the poor um, weren't typically treated with the heart that God had for them. So the people that are doing okay, the people that are financially set, they didn't always honor what the Old Testament taught and have a great heart towards the poor. Um, Sometimes the Pharisees, they would give big donations just for the show of it, just to make sure everyone thought they were awesome. Uh, The Romans generally had minimal concern for the poor. Uh, If you needed cheap labor, maybe they would come in handy. Think about the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 20 about the day laborers just hanging around all day waiting for somebody to say, hey, you want a job? Um, But often the poor were just viewed as being in the way. The poor were viewed as just being in the way. And then when Jesus starts ministering, the first time Jesus goes and he declares his mission publicly, the first time Jesus steps up to teach, this is who I am, this is what I'm about, this is the kingdom that I've come to initiate. Uh, It's in Luke chapter four, and if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. If you haven't got your Bible, it's all good, it's gonna be on the screen. But Luke four, 16, uh, we're gonna go through to verse 19. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. So with the protocol of how the synagogue worked, there was a point where there would be an invitation for someone to come and read from the scriptures. So that's not necessarily unusual that Jesus would do that. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. Now this is important. It's not unusual for someone to go to a church and you know, be invited to speak or to share or something and for the church to say, can you please teach on this subject or teach from this passage? But here, this is the verse Jesus wanted to speak on. That this wasn't just what the weekly reading was, so Jesus, can you please read this? Of all the book of Isaiah, and if you've ever read it, you know it's not a small read. This is what Jesus pointed to and said, this is what I need to share. And the first time that I'm going to declare who I am, what I'm about, what my mission is, and what it means for the rest of you. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. To the people that are in your way, the people that are just taking up space, the people that have nothing to offer society, the people that you and I would overlook, the people that are just there, the people that don't really have a place, the people that don't fit in, the people that are just around, the people that are in the way, these are who I've come to give the good news to, the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And Jesus, he just got back from the desert. He was tempted by Satan. And while he was there, Satan tempted him with money, wealth, power. And Jesus says, I'm not about any of that. I'm gonna go back to Nazareth and I'm gonna let everyone know I'm here for the poor, for the broken, for the hurting, for the lost, for the lonely, for the desperate, and for the hopeless. This is why I'm saying, Enemy, you may try and tempt me with all this stuff. That's not what I'm about. That's not what my kingdom is for. That's not why I'm here. I'm here for the lost, the lonely, the broken, the messed up, the people that have got no hope in life. These are the people that I have come to set free. In Jesus' name, that's worth an amen. And I'm gonna take a drink. So that passage that Jesus read from, uh, from the book of Isaiah was written about 700 years prior to Jesus reading that. And it was a time of extreme desperation. Extreme desperation for the people of Israel, extreme desperation for the people of the Old Testament. And there was a promise that was made to hopeless people that a savior would come. 
And Jesus picked that verse to start announcing what he was about and what he was going to do. And so carrying on in verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. We're launching something new. Something has started here today. And who's the first people that Jesus recruited? The hopeless, the desperate, the forgotten, the people that are just in everyone else's way. This is the opposite of an effective strategy. If you went to a business consultant, if you went to a church planning expert and you said, how should we do this? They'll tell you, you go to the centers of influence. You go to the people that are able to fund this ministry. You go to people that can move the needle. And Jesus says, no, I'm here for the lost, the lonely, the broken, the hurting, the poor, the people that have got no hope left. Those are the first on my list of people I wanna get involved with and set free. No logic in this at all, but it continued the Old Testament practice of caring about the poor deeply. This is all built and this is all founded on the simple yet very profound idea that people, every single one of us, every single one of us, both in this room, at home, online, anywhere in the world, every single person can say with confidence that they are made in the image of God. And this is a, uh, something that we're told in the book of Genesis that when God breathed life into humanity, he put his fingerprint on us in a way that is absent in the rest of creation. That there is something about people that's unique, there's something about us that is absolutely unique in all of creation that we would bear his image. That there's something about people that when people look towards us, that there's something they can start to see something of the Father. As, as people kind of look towards us, there's something that, that teaches people about God when they sort of see that people, the way that we treat each other, the good stuff that's in us, when God put his fingerprint on us and made us in the image of God, it was completely unique and it stamped his value on each and every one of us. Now, in, in youth conferences and uh, youth camps and youth groups all across the world, this is international, there's an illustration that youth pastors will do, and they'll get a dollar bill. I don't have a dollar bill, and that's okay. But they'll get a dollar bill, and they'll ask everybody and a bunch of teenagers, how much is this worth? And the students will yell back, that's worth one dollar. And then some big mouth at the back will say, can I have it? I'll let you decide what you say in response to that, but whatever. So you get a dollar bill, and then you crumple it up. Because it's a youth conference, you can do gross stuff, so you pretend to spit on it. You drop it on the floor and you step on it and then you pick it back up and it's all mangled and it's all crumbled up and it's all gross because you spat on it. And you say, how much is it worth now? And it's still worth $1. Because the value has been predetermined. The value is predecided. It doesn't matter what happens along the way. It doesn't affect the value. It doesn't matter if it gets beaten up. It doesn't matter if it gets trodden on. It doesn't matter if life is unfair. It doesn't matter if people treat you the way that you don't deserve to be treated. It doesn't matter if you've been an extreme victim of extremely awful things. It doesn't change the value that you've had. And when Jesus came to set free the poor and the needy and the lost, it's because we needed to remind ourselves this is the value that people have. Jesus reminds people of the value we have always had. This isn't something new. Jesus isn't looking at worthless people and saying you're worthy now. He's looking at worthy people that have believed and other people have believed are worthless and is saying you are worth more than words could ever describe. As Jesus came to the poor, as Jesus came to the hurting, the needy, the hopeless, the desperate, the forgotten, the overlooked, 
And he said, I don't see you that way. I see you as invaluable. I see you as priceless. Absolutely priceless. Because just like that dollar bill, it doesn't matter if life has beaten you up. It hurts, I'm sure. There may be some very real pain that you're carrying around. But the promise from God is that your value has never been up for grabs. Your value has never been in question. And that is some good news, my friends. And there's a verse in Luke 16 where Jesus is talking directly about money, but he reminds the people listening that it's not money that is true value, but rather in Luke 16, 11, it's the true riches of heaven are people. That's what Jesus said about people, is that people are the true riches of heaven. It's people that have an infinite value. It's people that are celebrated and loved and adored and treasured in the kingdom. The rest of it is whatever, but it's people that matter most to God. And Jesus, as part of his mission to come and start a new kingdom, was to make sure that that was first and foremost, as he announced, this is what I'm about. It's to remind everybody that the true riches of heaven are people. No matter what has happened in life, no matter how beat up you feel, you are what matters. At home, this is true for you, as it's true for people here, as it's true for people that don't know Jesus yet that they are what really matters. Uh, John the Baptist is a character in the New Testament. Some of you will know this very well, but John was uh, a relative of Jesus who before Jesus began teaching, before before, uh, he started performing miracles, John the Baptist would announce, there's someone coming, there's someone coming. Look out, he's coming, uh, talking directly about Jesus. And as part of John the Baptist getting up and and leading somewhat of a ministry and starting to announce that Jesus was coming, he upset the wrong people, and so King Herod threw him in jail. But uh, John had some disciples, and uh, so we're going to look at what John had to say about some of the disciples as they came to see him to give an update um, about how Jesus was doing and what was going on, and hey, I was announcing this guy was coming, how's it all working out? And Luke 7, 18, the disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing giving John an update in prison. So John called for two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask him, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? So here we have John in a really interesting moment where he's doubting, is this really the Messiah? Is this really the king that I was expecting? There's fair reason to believe that John, with the way that he was preaching and the way that he was declaring that the king is coming and the way he was talking about Jesus, was that he was expecting that there was going to be a military leader, there was going to be someone that was going to overthrow Rome, someone that was going to overthrow the corruption in the temple, and instead, he's hearing a different report than someone overthrowing the government. Instead, Jesus is busying himself with helping people who have no way of helping him in return. Jesus was busy with helping people who had no way of helping him in return. Jesus was helping people who would not have been able to return the favor. Luke 7, picking up, verse 20. John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? So they ask a question, and instead of Jesus giving them a direct answer, he invites them to come and check out the action. Verse 21. At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who are blind. Then he turned to John's disciples. Go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. Echoing back to what we read in Luke 4, 
the blind see, the lame walk, those with the leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. In a moment of doubt where John the Baptist says, I don't know if this is, if this is really what I thought it was going to be. I don't, I'm not sure if Jesus is that Messiah. I, I'm not sure. Do we need to keep looking? The response from Jesus is, look at how I'm helping people that cannot help themselves. Look at the way lives are being changed in people that have no way of ever repaying the favor. Look at how people's lives are being elevated and raised up. Look at what is going on. And Jesus in Luke 7, where we just read, was referring to Luke 4, where he was reading from Isaiah. And Isaiah was referring to uh, the book of Leviticus, where it talks about the day of Jubilee, or the year of Jubilee, excuse me. And the year of Jubilee was every 50th year, the Old Testament people of God were commanded to have a Jubilee year where all debt was forgiven, servants were released from their duties, the physical land was rested, land that was taken as a payment or as uh, as a debt was returned, And it was seen as a fresh start. Now, can you imagine if every 50 years you're wiping the slate clean, the difference that would make in the lives of poor people? Every 50 years, we're just going to wipe the slate clean. We're going to start fresh. Can you imagine the difference that would make in the lives of poor people? And when John questioned the effectiveness or the authenticity of Jesus' message, Jesus said, just look around. The kind of kingdom I have come to establish is happening. This is the year of Jubilee type stuff that Jesus was up to. When God moves, people rise up. When God moves, people rise up. And if you do any reading around great revivals that have sprung up in the last 2,000 years, you'll see that it goes hand in hand that when the message of Jesus is proclaimed and people are getting saved, you'll also see great initiatives of people being helped in the communities where these revivals are springing up. It's never just a lot of people started coming to church. It's always the communities were enriched by people who took what Jesus was doing seriously and started caring about the people that no one else cared about. And for 2,000 years, the church has continued what was evident in the Old Testament and what Jesus taught was a key part of his mission that people are rising up. And there's a few things that made the early church as we fast forward a little bit after the life of Jesus and the message of the cross traveled throughout Europe. There's a few things that made the Christians and the churches stand out to the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, The first thing was that they didn't have church buildings at the time, so there was nothing that they would describe as a temple that this new religion was using. Uh, They also, they didn't have, um, uh, they didn't have a formal set, uh, set of priesthood that they would expect to have in a temple, which is very unusual at the time. Uh, They elevated women to significant positions of leadership. There was a unifying of rich and poor. There was uh, a a real intermingling of every socioeconomic difference. People were coming together in unity in ways that other religions at the time were not experiencing. It set Christianity apart. And there's another thing that set the church apart from uh, the pagan religions that were around Europe at the time, and that was that the Christians would rescue babies. And there was a a practice that was shockingly common and acceptable uh, in the first century around Europe. And that's that if there was an unwanted baby, maybe the baby was sickly, or maybe for reasons they needed a boy instead of a girl, they would just take the baby to the outskirts of the city and abandon the baby. It happened upsettingly often. And the Christians, there's documentation that historians have been able to collect of stories of Christians that would patrol the areas in a very organized fashion. They would patrol the areas where it was common for babies to be abandoned, looking for children that had been left to die. And they would rescue these children, bring them in, and raise them up as best they could. 
It's something that stood out to the Romans. It's something that stood out to the Greeks, is that here's the church caring about the poor, not just lip service, but they're willing to care about the people that you and I would never ever care about, would literally discard and get rid of. And here's the church making a difference. I wrote this down, and it was a big challenge for me, and maybe it's helpful for you, but the church does their best work when they copy Jesus. The church does their best work when they copy Jesus. James 1.27, very well-known verse, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. And this is a theme that continues throughout James is that it certainly appears that the church or the churches that James is writing to, that there's all sorts of favorability that's given to the wealthy people. And James says, no, 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 you need to think differently about that. Don't give rich people a special seat. Don't, don't be extra kind to the wealthy people. We're a church. We're not just trying to elevate people of you know, one socioeconomic status. We're not looking for people of high influence. We're not just trying to schmooze the wealthy among us. We are a community of believers, and next to you might be someone that's dirt poor. Someone next to you might be someone with a criminal record. Someone next to you might be someone that's newly immigrated to this country. I don't know, but in a church, we're all one, and we're all unified because we are all made in the image of God. Excuse me a second. How you doing, Megan Wood? She's going to be so mad that I did that. I love you, though. I'm going to move on. She's going to be real mad. But a few weeks ago, we looked at the Pharisees. I'm not going to go into a whole bunch more detail by way of review, but the Pharisees, they, had, uh, they were the ones that wanted to be extremely religious. They were the ones that thought that if they were more religious than anyone else, that that would get them God's blessing. That would get them God's favor. They looked at poor people as though God's judgment was on them. They looked at them as that they were sinners, or maybe your parents were sinners, so you're born into poverty. God's favor is on me. God loves me. God has a special place for me because, look, I'm wealthy and I'm influential. The tax collectors, they pretty much would have just ignored the poor people because you can't get blood out of a stone. They would have overlooked the poor people, given them zero value at all. The temple may have tolerated poor people. They were definitely ready to take advantage of them. When we read the story of Jesus flipping tables and clearing the temple, it says that there were doves for sale. That was to sell to the poor people that couldn't afford to bring a sacrificial lamb. But even those people, the doves, they were definitely defective and not suitable for sacrifice, so they're just ripping those people off. And then there are the Romans. As long as the poor wasn't causing any trouble, very forgettable. Easy to ignore, easy to push to one side. And the truth is, is that we've all been treated like that, regardless of your financial situation. I mean, let me just rattle off a list of adjectives that describe the poor in the Gospels. And regardless of what's in your bank account or what's not in your bank account, you will identify with some of these here. The poor were desperate, alone, afraid, ignored, grieving, overlooked, resented, forgotten, judged, ridiculed, and hopeless. There is not a single person here, whether it's in person or whether it's online, there is not a single person that doesn't identify with multiple things on that list. They can't say, I've experienced that in very painful ways through life. Every single one of us can point to those and say, you know what, I can click with that. And the Bible has, uh, if you do a Google search, the Bible has around 200 times the word poor appears. 
But if you kind of look more for the context rather than just the singular word, Rick Warren uh, has done the research and he says that there's around 2,000 references to poor people in the Bible. But then if you expand that even further to include what Jesus would talk about as people that are poor in spirit, you'll see that every page of the Bible is filled with Jesus and God getting involved with people like that and bringing freedom and hope and freedom in Jesus' name. One thing I would encourage, as we start thinking about this and start thinking about what it means for us and what all this has to do with us and what we should do with this, I want to put one thing out there for you. One thing, and you can take this to heart, you can take this seriously, or you can ignore it. One thing I'd say is inconvenience yourself to bless somebody today. Inconvenience yourself to bless somebody today because we all know multiple people who've got all kinds of things from that list going on in their lives right now. Inconvenience yourself to bless somebody today. And it's not as simple as financial generosity. That's a real thing. I don't want to ignore that. But maybe it's just a case of being generous with time. Maybe it's being generous with words. I don't know. But let's inconvenience ourselves to bless somebody today. I've got a feeling that when Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive, he wasn't joking. And not long ago, I was uh, chatting with a group of guys from the church, and we were talking kind of in a subject that's not a million miles away from this, and one of the guys was very happy to share about the times where he's given, where he's been uh, putting other people first. He was very quick to tell me just how much joy it gave him to be able to give, to be able to see the relief that someone else felt, to be able to see someone else feeling blessed and experience the blessing of God, just what that did for him on the inside. So it was absolutely incredible. And I don't think that story is unique. I think as Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. I think that's something that we could experience in our lives, amen? You know, there are many reasons that a first century person would find themselves in poverty. A first century person would be considered poor. It might be that uh, they were widowed. It could be that there was a family debt that they inherited that was shockingly common. Uh, It could be that they were extorted by tax collectors. We talked about that a little while ago. Maybe they're affected by a famine or a drought, but there are any numbers of reasons that get someone in a position where they would be classified as poor. I mean, two-thirds of the community were considered poor, like absolutely desperate. And for you and I, as we think about this and what this means to us and what it means to our workplaces and what it means to our families and wherever situation you found yourself in, wherever God has placed you in life right now, there are all different kinds of reasons that people are poor whether it's poor in spirit, whether it's, uh, you know, materially speaking, poor and financially, there are all kinds of reasons why somebody would end up poor. But I wrote this down, that why you're broken doesn't change who can fix you. The reasons that got you or someone else in that place of being poor, whether it's poor in spirit, feeling lost, lonely, isolated, overlooked, hopeless, the reasons that got you to that place, and they're real reasons, I'm not belittling that, But the reasons that got you there don't change who can get you out of that. The reasons that you're broken, the reasons that you're feeling this way, the reasons that that's your reality, don't change that it is God and only God that can really get you through that. It's God that heals the broken spirit. It's God that heals those that are poor in spirit. It's those people that look at Isaiah, at the verse from Isaiah that Jesus read in Luke 4 and said, that is the message that is going to change my life. Psalm 113, verse 5. I read this last week. It's my favorite psalm. Who can be compared with the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high? 
He stoops to look down on heaven and on earth. He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes, even the princes of his own people. Oh, your workplace is filled with people who don't believe they have value. And God is raising up a church that's gonna change that. God is raising up a church that is gonna be obsessed with seeing people raised up from where they are today to help people experience that jubilee year type clean slate and fresh start. That just like John the Baptist disciples that we could see the evidence of Jesus' lordship because people's lives are being transformed wherever he's moving, wherever he's sending his people. Lives are being changed. People are being raised up that the community as a whole would observe God moving because people are rising up out of brokenness and the church wouldn't forget that we do our best work when we copy Jesus. That the same curse that the poor people experienced is still experienced today regardless of finances. That those people that are poor in spirit are just as common and just as frequent then as they are now. But God still brings hope and relief to the desperate, alone, afraid, ignored, grieving, overlooked, resented, forgotten, judged, ridiculed, and the hopeless. It doesn't matter why you or anyone else is struggling under this weight, God is ready to get involved. God is ready to get involved. And I'm excited to be a part of a church that's ready to get involved with him. We're a church, I've seen this firsthand, this church is an extremely generous church. We're a kind church. We're a church that loves people. We're a church that wants people to get the help that they need so that they can live the life that God's purpose for them. It's an honor to be a part of that church. And I wanna invite you as you pray for Word of Life Church, that you continue to pray that we would be the kind of church that's copying what Jesus did and we will see more and more people helped, raised up, lifted, more broken people find healing in him. Would we pray like that? Couple of questions for you. Maybe you have a chance this week to uh, reflect on these, pray about these a little bit. Maybe it's helpful. The first thing is what's something you need to rise up from? He's thinking about that list of adjectives that I rattled off a few minutes ago. What's something right now that is fueling that desperation, something that's fueling that hopelessness, something that's fueling that sense of being forgotten? What's something that you need to rise up from? We don't need to wait till January for a New Year's resolution. And I've seen this in my own life and the life of many, many other people, but God can do an awful lot in a year. Next Thanksgiving, there can be a lot of things we can be thankful for if we make some strong decisions today. If you need to write it down, if you need to tell somebody, tell somebody. But what's something you need to rise up from this year? What is something that you need to leave behind and you can move forward in what he's promised you? What is something? Maybe it's one thing, maybe it's 10. But I know from experience, God can do a lot in a year. Next Thanksgiving, you can have a lot of things to thank God for, a lot of breakthroughs to praise him for. Second question, how can you help somebody? How can you help somebody? And you may be here, and I would guess this would describe most of us, if not all of us, but I think most of us would have something where we would say, I'm the one that needs help. I'm feeling poor in spirit. My bank balance is out of whack. I'm the one that needs help. And you know what, you're exactly right, and I pray and I hope that me or someone else is able to help you get the help that you need and be a blessing to you. 
But in the middle of you needing a blessing, do something for somebody. The smallest gesture, I'm telling you, the smallest gesture of kindness, the smallest way of trying to be a blessing to someone else is fuel that is just burning. The, the first step of, you know what, I'm going to be a blessing to somebody. I need help. I need breakthrough. I need relief. My life's a mess. But you decide, you know what, I'm going to find a way to inconvenience myself to bless somebody today. Breakthrough start to come. It's better to give than it is to receive. Proverbs says, people that refresh others will themselves be refreshed. It's a biblical paradox. It doesn't work in logic. But something about caring about other people, putting other people first, springboards breakthrough in your life. Brings breakthrough. Brings healing. Takes your eyes off whatever's keeping you down and helps you lift up. How can you help somebody today? I want to remind you of a verse you read a moment ago. Luke 16, 11. As we talk about the father heart towards people. As we talk about the love that God has for people. Luke 16. The true riches of heaven is people. Is you, is me, is the desperate, is the lost, is the forgotten, is the hungry, is the starving to death, is the people in hospital rooms right now. Is the teenager getting bullied at school? Is the person that feels lost and abandoned and not there's anyone in the entire world that even knows their name? Those people are the true riches of heaven. That's what heaven cares about. That's what God cares about. And you may be here right now and this may be the first time you've ever came to Word of Life Church or maybe the first time you've come to any church. And you've never heard that the creator of the universe cares about you that God loves you. Maybe you've heard it, but you kind of just shrug because, well, you know, God loves everyone, so I guess he has to love me. Just because God loves everyone doesn't mean he loves you less. You're his joint favorite. You may have never believed that before, but the creator of the universe, the one that put the stars in the sky, the one that decided just how big the Grand Canyon needed to be, loves you in a way that I could never ever describe. My favorite verse in the Bible, Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his great love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still a mess, while we were still broken, while we were still poor, while we were still poor in spirit, while we were still isolated, while we were running away from him, while we were actively pushing him away, while we were angry at the church, while we were making the worst decisions of our lives, Jesus died for you and he died for me. And you may be here right now and if I were to ask you in a moment of honesty, do you believe in God? Are you following him? Are you living your life for him? Is he Lord of your life? In a moment of honesty, it'd probably be a real uncomfortable conversation, but you'd have to say, I I'm not. You may say, I believe in God. I believe he's out there somewhere, but... I'm not following him in any meaningful way. He's not changing my life. If that's you, I want to let you know that 17 years ago, I made the decision that I was going to follow Jesus. And it's the best decision I've ever made. And in 17 years, life has had its ups and its downs, but I've never once regretted that decision to follow Jesus. And I want to give each and every one of us here a chance if this is the moment, if this is the right time, and if you're here today, I believe that it is for you to decide, you know what? I'm gonna follow God. 
I'm gonna live a life of faith. I haven't got it all figured out. I'm gonna put one foot in front of the other and I'm gonna follow him. And if that's you today, I'd love to pray for you. So I invite everyone here just to close your eyes and bow your heads. This is just give you a moment to, to think by yourself without any distractions going on to give privacy to those around you. But if you be honest enough today to say, you know what, Tom, this is me. I need to turn my life around. I need to start following God. I'd love to pray for you. I wanna invite everyone here. If that's you, if you just put your hand in the air. At home, if you just click the button that says, I raise my hand to follow Jesus. Just so I know who we're praying for today. Amen. Anybody else here today? Amen, thank you. Anyone else here? I promise we're not gonna do anything weird. We're not do anything strange. But when we pray in just a moment, I'd love to know who I'm praying for. Amen. Anybody else here? A home, I hope you've had a chance to click. I raise my hand if this is for you today. Anybody else before we start praying? Amen. Come on, Word of Life Church, in person, at home. Can we please celebrate people finding God today, people making the best decision they could ever make. And we're gonna pray a prayer together. And the words are on the screen. I wanna invite you, if you're here and you're a believer, I want you to pray this, believing that someone else is finding breakthrough as we pray. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, one more time, can we please celebrate? Amen.